Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. All right, everybody, listen up. I need you to convict the guilty, clear the innocent, and find the truth in a nutshell. Let's be careful out there. The end. Let's talk about Francis Glessner Lee. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1931, Lucille Thomas became the first woman to purchase a professional baseball team, the Topeka Senators. The first use of a rocket for postal delivery happened when 102 pieces of mail successfully traveled almost two miles over a mountain in Austria. Both Alka-Seltzer and the modern electric shaver hit the market. The U.S. officially declared the Star-Spangled Banner as the national anthem, and Nevada legalized gambling. Jane Addams received the Nobel Peace Prize, and Brazil's Christ the Redeemer statue was completed. Dracula with Bela Lugosi, Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, and the comic Dick Tracy all premiered. Ida B. Wells and Anna Pavlova both passed away. James Earl Jones, William Shatner, Barbara Eden, Dan Rather, and Rita Moreno were all born. And in 1931, Frances Glessner Lee used her wealth for good and science as she dove into the world of forensic medicine. Frances Glessner was born on March 25, 1878, in Chicago, the youngest of the two children of John Jacob Glessner and Frances Macbeth Glessner. Papa was the son of a newspaper publisher in Zanesville, Ohio. At 20, he was deep into the sales of farm equipment and also manufacturing of the same and a lot of innovation. But as he was getting settled, he boarded with the Macbeth family. This family was an extraordinarily educated family, perhaps not one of wealth, but of wealth of the mind. And the daughter of the house, one Francis, I just have to say, I say it all the time, it was Thunderbolt City. It, <laughs> it was an immediate meeting of the minds and a meeting of the hearts. They fell in love. There really isn't a lot of information about her background. Uh, her father had been a gold prospector in California and then moved back to New York City, completely skipping over Ohio, and very rarely saw the family. Frances was really raised by a single mother. We don't know exactly what she did. She probably taught school at some point, but again, very few records exist. By the early age of 27, he was already a vice president in the new office his company had opened in Chicago. He had been paid, in addition to his great salary, in a significant portfolio of stock options. I'm calling this his moving on up era, and I'm not <laughs> going to get into it exactly, but let's just say lucrative mergers upward career trajectory ended in a little company you might have heard of called International Harvester. We, Chris Graham and I, actually had an international scout, which evidently used to be given free with purchase of a combine. I loved that. Uh, it was like riding around in a box, I will tell you, but that will let you know the price of a combine if they give you a free car with purchase. I mean, <laughs> I looked it up and there's no more international harvesters, but the price of a bottom of the barrel, like John Deere S780 combine is well over half a million dollars. Wow. Basic. So like you're looking at the same sort of proportion and not to put too fine a point on it, the same kind of profits. 
In Chicago, the city of such industrial millionaires as Armour, Studebaker, Pullman, and McCormick, Mr. Glessner was still one of the wealthiest men in the city. In Chicago, as John was hustling very hard to get the business up and running and a great success, Mama Frances gave birth to their first child, George Macbeth Glessner. The interesting thing to me is a week after their first son was born was the Chicago Fire. How's that for dropped into history? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Through the 1870s, John worked, George grew, and Mama Frances sewed and crafted and did all the things that a woman of her class would have been doing at the time, including having another child. Seven years after their first child was born, little baby Frances, who they called Fanny, was born into this family. As an illustration of how this family is up and coming, by the time little Fanny was four, her father was a millionaire in 1880s dollars, which you have to multiply by a lot to get to 2023 dollars. Uh, 33, evidently. That's what I got. Yay, math. <laughs> so by the time, you know, your average person is thinking Chuck E. Cheese is pretty cool, <laughs> this family had $33 million. I've often said that money gives you the freedom to be yourself. Maybe I should say more like the lack of worry about money allows you to be yourself because Mama, as an educated woman of enormous wealth, indulged in whatever she took a mind to. Philanthropy, yes, fully expected, but also sewing and jewelry making. And both parents began to live the lives of the social elite in Chicago, which was well used to, quote, the new money of the industrialists and accepted them wholeheartedly. Another thing all that money is able to do for a family like this is when their son develops respiratory issues in Chicago in the summertime and the doctor says, you need to get this kid out to the country, you can pack up and afford to take you and your staff to New Hampshire to get some fresh air and mountain breezes or whatever it is that's going to help little George. And it did. The family began to go during the troublesome season to a large opulent hotel in New Hampshire, which they did for many years until one day, which actually intersects with another subject in such an interesting way. A preacher named Henry Ward Beecher, famous preacher, was staying in the hotel also, and he had been dragged through the mud by a former subject of ours, Victoria Woodhull. She, Victoria Woodhull, had outed his extramarital affair in her paper. Now, she did pay the price for attacking a respected clergyman. Lady persons, quote, pretending to be journalists weren't as respected then, and even though she was telling the truth, you know... She went down with that ship. But his reputation was definitely tarnished. Papa came into the room and saw his daughter sitting on the lap of Henry Ward Beecher and about popped his clogs. He <laughs> saw him talking to his daughter and is like, what kind of problematic hotel is full of such riffraffery? <laughs> we can't stay here. Apparently, Fanny and the Reverend had like a standing lemonade date every day. Because they just let her go off. I mean, it's very safe up there. They just let her go off and do her thing. And she had befriended him. And <laughs> yeah, Papa was not amused. So it was time for them to build their own house. They built their own thing up in the hills. It was the vanguard of other large establishments that would follow them up there. They called it at first the big house. It ended up being called the rocks. They went back and forth 
between the city and this house for Frances's entire childhood. They actually built her a relatively full-size log cabin as a playhouse, which reminds me a lot of another Gilded Age set of children, the Vanderbilts, who had a our house size playhouse in the grounds of their big mansion. Right. Well, let me, this is their summer house. It had 19 rooms, ultimately, an apiary, had gazebos, there was trails. And when Fanny and her brother got there in the summer, they just played outside. There was so much for them to explore. There was people that could teach them things about the birds. And they had a friend named Isaac Scott, who was a very prominent furniture designer who they could say, you know, we could use like a treehouse. And he'd be like, all right. And he builds this beautiful treehouse. And dad could say, we need a bookcase. And he builds them a beautiful craftsman bookcase. So that's the level of wealth we're talking about. And this place was kind of a spot on the local tour. Carriages would ride up the mountain so the townspeople could show their friends this house that's being built in the middle of nowhere. One time, though, and this was the last time before they put a gate in front of the house, a carriage drove up to the kitchen window and ordered lemonade like it was an Arby's or something. Oh, my gosh. Oh, maybe the world's first drive through Maybe. I mean, they entertained these people as best as possible. Mama brought up a fruitcake from Delmonico's to serve them all. You know, she tried to be welcoming to her neighbors from the village, but only to a certain point. You know what that reminds me of? You know, in Pride and Prejudice, how Lizzie and her aunt and uncle end up at Pemberley. Right. And it's perfectly acceptable for respectable visitors to be shown around somebody's full-on house by the housekeeper. And the housekeeper kept that money as tips. And that was legitimately fine. And that's what that reminds me of is like, has everybody been reading Jane Austen? (laughs) But you know, that same thing happened to Martha Washington when we covered her, like people just pitched up and you had to give them mashed potatoes and pot roast or whatever, you you know, you had to be ready. Is this the last vestige of that happening? Maybe. Maybe. Well, they put a stop to it because they put a gate. I mean, it was like, (laughs) all done. We're all done with this. It's a bridge too far. So as much talk as the house up on the hill in the middle of nowhere engendered, just imagine they set their sights on a prominent street in the middle of Chicago and, shall we say, exercised their eccentricity right in the public eye. (laughs) Well, they had been building this custom home in New Hampshire, and they were totally on board with all the projects that it involved and the designing. And wouldn't it be great if we had a, and then they had it. But that was only their summer house. In Chicago, they bought a plot of land on a street called Prairie Avenue, and they hired an architect named Henry Hobson Richardson. He was ridiculously famous, but for mostly designing more institutional buildings, like, let's say, Boston's Trinity Church in Copley Square, a public library in Woburn, Mass., that has a room that is not at all unlike the long room at Trinity College in Dublin. This guy did big projects. So when Papa went to him and he said, would you do a house? And he's like, I'll do whatever anybody pays me to do. What do we got? Had him over for dinner. Henry pulls a picture out of the library that the Glesners had of Abington Abbey in Oxfordshire, England. And he says, do you like how this looks? And they're like, yeah, that looks great. So he says, okay, here's my inspiration picture. And he built them this house in this very upscale neighborhood that looked nothing like any of the other houses. Now imagine, 
Gilded Age Chicago. Big lawns, big porches, grand entryways, lots of flash at the front of the house, you know, lots of curb appeal. This house was built of granite slabs and it looked like a prison almost. But what was inside was what was important because it was all built around a courtyard, just like the houses in New Orleans, where you look at the front of it and you're like, oh, that doesn't look like too much. You walk inside and you're in this lush courtyard. And that's how this house on Prairie Avenue was designed. They loved it. It fitted the family spectacularly. One of the neighbors, upscale as he was, was very famous for saying, what have I done in a past life that leads me to this punishment of stepping outside of my own house and seeing this monstrosity every day? (laughs) I mean, it was built right up to the sidewalk. It was right on the street. There was no front lawn. There's lovely arches. And if you look at it as an architectural piece, it is attractive, but it looked nothing like the rest of the neighborhood. And someone, a critic had called it pathologically private. (laughs) You know, hooray. That's another one of those things. You got the money, you can customize your whole endeavor. Absolutely. Another thing that money can do is you can spread the wealth to your community at large. And you know that I love this. Both my parents are symphony musicians and my father is from Chicago. Both of those things are direct beneficiaries of the Glessners. Mr. Glessner and Mrs. Glessner were on the committee that established the Chicago Symphony in 1891. In addition to that patronage, they had literary societies. They were patrons of artists, of craftsmen, of other musicians. They indulged in every single creative and intellectual endeavor that caught their fancy. And I was wondering what I would take up. And so I was thinking about it. And I always say that if I had another life, I would have taken up historical costumery. And that would be what I would spend my free time on. Or um, maybe beekeeping. Oh, well, that you would have in common with Mother Glessner. In New Hampshire, she kept bees and had enough bees to get a thousand pounds of honey a season. That meant nothing to me, but you need 556 bees to make a pound of honey per season. So there's math for you. How do you get from a pound to a thousand times 556? A field of bees. (laughs) No kidding. You're also able to hire local artisans to teach you things. You know, Beckett, you had mentioned that she was making silver projects. Mother Frances had a artisan from Hull House come in and taught her jewelry making on all of her silver pieces on the bottom as a stamp saying, I made this. She had the letter G with a B inside as kind of an homage to her other house and the things she does there. She has an extensive collection. You can go to her home in Chicago and get a tour, and there is some of her silver work there. Both of the children were educated at home in a specially designed schoolroom and studied biology, chemistry, geology, art, music, especially violin. Guess who the teachers were? One guess. Math. (laughs) (laughs) Math, literature. Oh, (laughs) okay. The irony. There's an irony, brothers and sisters. The word is penmanship. I cannot read it. (laughs) Hilarious. Dancing languages, German, Latin, French in particular, um, though they didn't let their daughter study Greek, which is funny. So the, the son studied Greek, but not the daughter. And geology, as well as the womanly arts of needlework of all kinds, both practical and decorative. She was taught to make jelly and preserves, even some basic cooking. 
I am wondering, speaking of Jane Austen references, would Miss Bingley consider young Frances an accomplished woman? I would hope at this point oh that young Frances would make the cut. I think so. I think so. I mean, she could outfit an entire person by a very young age with an extremely ornamental garment, you know, embroidered and some crocheted shawl, maybe anything. And she's she's taught how to do this. And I love that one of the hobbies, I, I, don't, I hate to say hobbies because these people put so much energy into it. One of the things that Fanny did to showcase her skills was create dollhouses. And so she would outfit everything, make all the bed linens, everything in the house, the curtains, the rugs, everything to miniature in these dollhouses. And it just showcased all the crafts that she was learning how to make. I love that. I follow a miniatures made from everyday things Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I have to, because I also follow some interior design groups and I have to like flip back, wait, which group am I in? Because some of these people are pretty good. Right. So any interest of Brother George and young Fanny could be followed. I mean, they lived a your wish is my command sort of lifestyle. And I love this for them. After an episode of tonsillitis, which involved bravery and inhalation of ether, some <laughs> 19th century surgery. <laughs> well, that was the second choice. The first was a doctor that said he painted the tonsils with cocaine and then just snipped them off. So they went for a second opinion. <laughs> they got ether. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go. See? I, <laughs> yes. I might choose that too. Um, wow. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup was one of the top selling patent medicines of the day and it was absolutely full of heroin. Um, and they gave that to children till the 1930s and it was not good. No. Well, Fanny became intrigued with the practice of medicine and she was allowed to accompany several local doctors on their rounds. She even came home and consulted uh, reference books, herbals, you know, in order to concoct medicine for her mentor's patients. You can't really do that now without no. some kind of breaking bad laboratory. <laughs> some of the things she made, I wrote calf's foot jelly, mm. Ooh, maybe other more palatable gelatins. This is pre-jello. So in order to get jello, there had yep. to be some calf's feet. Albumin water, mm, water, egg white and fruit juice. You know, some hipster cocktail places still serve you albumin water. They call it something else. <laughs> um, custards of all kinds. Tea, which in France, an herbal tea is called a tisane, and, and that seemed to be the word they used here too. Herbal tea, dandelion for stomach upset, ginger, still used, both of those things. Lavender water for calming, although they would dab it on your temples. I'm not sure it's oh. going to go in, but- No, I'm it's just the scent of it. Got the it. The scent, yeah, it's an aromatherapy thing. No, that makes perfect sense. Excellent. I do that all the time. Yeah. And there's, there's little Fanny in her- very large playhouse in New Hampshire over the wood stove, you know, cooking up these things. It's such an image. She's still a young girl. You know, she's not a teenager yet. <laughs> in 1890, Brother George went away to Harvard, like you do. And there at Harvard, he met a young man who would become his best friend and a major character in our story. His name was George McGrath, also a George. So there's two Georges. So let's go, Brother George, Mr. McGrath. How about okay, that? that sounds great. Yeah. And Mr. McGrath was a frequent visitor, not only to the Rocks, but to Chicago. He was friendly with Fanny. And in the off-season, when the Rocks was all closed up and there was a lot of snow, the two Georges and anybody else who was brave enough to come along 
did the 150-mile trek from Boston via train to the rocks, climbed through the snow, holed up in Fanny's little wood cabin, lit the fire, and partied all weekend. That was their escape. I love this. And you know, Mr. McGrath became part of the family in an immediate and sort of unquestioned way. Jet has friends like that, or at least, you know, similar. I call them, and this is, all the words are capitalized, friends with keys. (laughs) So like, I would say in this day and age, if some of your child's friends can come in, open the refrigerator, take something out and drink it, and you don't think a thing of it, that's the George McGrath story. Yeah. I have a kid like that and I stock things for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no other reason to buy root beer than the fact nope. that cash is coming over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I We don't eat that many Kalamata olives, cool. except this kid comes in and wants them with a spoon. <laughs> I love those. Actually. I do too, but he consumes a lot of them. I'm concerned about <laughs> something. I don't even know what. Pickling his innards. What? I don't know. What's in a what's in an olive? Isn't there brine? It's soaking in brine. Wouldn't that pickle his innards? Oh, he... pickle. I thought you said it tickles his innards. Oh, I was tickles. like, what are, where are we well, going it, it... <laughs> with this? Okay. <laughs> oh gosh. So Mr. McGrath was not from moneyed parents, but he was from a respectable preacher's family. And he plays such an important part in young Fanny's later life that we thought it was important to introduce him now. George M., like in kindergarten, or as we will start saying, Mr. McGrath from now on. (laughs) One of the things that Mr. McGrath was able to do with his friend George and Fanny when she was 15 was go to, can I have a drum roll? The 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Yeah, anyone of breathing age seems to have made it Chicago in 1893. This is our obligatory mention of the event. Uh, but this event in this family was very, very important because Papa John was on the committee that battled to get the World's Fair in Chicago. They went up against J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, William Waldorf Astor, who were trying to get it in New York. And because of the team of Chicago, it was in Chicago. So it's a big deal. And of course, because they were involved in the behind the scenes, you know, the kids got to tour the fairgrounds as they were being built. So it was a big deal. It was. They also had basically backstage passes and velvet ropes parted at their approach. Um, And the famous Bertha Palmer of the Palmer House Hotel called on each other and served on committees together. Julia Ward Howe stayed at their house during the Women's Congress. Wow. So it was all well and good to live this lifestyle of, of freedom and backstage passes and I know a guy. But as the siblings got older, the real world of societal expectations finally got a hold of them, although its grasp on them was maybe lighter than less elevated mortals. So, right. you know, let's play the extraordinarily small violin. But rather than finishing his law degree, Brother George went to work for his father in the family business. Perfectly respectable in that time and place. He led the VP businessman lifestyle. He also worked his way up. He started, I mean, yes, there was nepotism involved, but he learned the whole business from filing clerk to manager and on on up. Right. A couple of years afterward, Fanny turned 18, and from then on, by her family, was most often called Francis. So we'll do that too. Francis was sent on the well-heeled young lady's grand tour, like in a room with a view, minus the murder and love interest. Too bad for Francis. (laughs) Um, Francis and her Aunt Helen, 
as chaperone traveled first to London and then on to other countries in Europe. This family is big on journaling their lives. There's journal entries that you can read, especially from her mother's point of view. I mean, detailing the birthday celebrations and just little things the kids said, very detailed. While she's on this 14-month adventure, our Francis sent home 100 letters about her every single day that was going on. At this point, looking back as an older woman, Francis had talked about how she had wanted at this point to go to medical school and was not allowed to go. And I I just don't know that her recollection matches reality. I think that the slightest push would have made it happen. I mean, they had a prominent female doctor as a common visitor at their house, mm-hmm. you know, and not everyone is brave enough to push away their whole society and go for that. I mean, there were lady doctors at colleges by this point all over the United States, but so I don't know. I mean, I know well, she couldn't go to Harvard, which right, is where that's her brother went. Say. Yeah. Yeah. But like, is that a whole reason to throw the whole thing out with the bathwater? I just don't know um, if yeah. it was top of her mind, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't think that that washes with how her parents let her, you know, her education growing up. They were so focused on it. So I think, like you just said, I think if she had pushed it, she could have gone somewhere, but maybe she just had her heart set on Harvard and she knew she couldn't get in there. Well, I mean, you know, we've all been Rory Gilmore. It's the same thing happened to her. <laughs> or was it Paris Geller that couldn't get in? That was so. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So she went with the accepted path for young ladies who've gotten back from their grand tour, and that is of settling down. Another classmate of Brother George's introduced Francis to his business partner, a 30-year-old lawyer named Blewett Lee. He was 11 years older than Francis, an only child from Mississippi, but his father is notable. His daddy, I think we should probably call him that, was a Confederate general in the Civil War. He was the guy who gave the order to fire at Fort Sumter, the very first battle of the Civil War. So that's kind of a big deal. He was a Confederate general. Yeah, daddy... Daddy Lee, (laughs) Grandpa Lee, I don't know what to call him, um, later became a state senator. Isn't that interesting that key members of the Confederate Army later became state senators? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So our Mr. Lee, young Mr. Lee, graduated from Harvard with his law degree and set up shop in Atlanta, which was an up-and-coming city after the nearly total destruction during the Civil War. We've all seen Gone with the Wind. Atlanta was called the gateway city to the New South. It was the place to be for quick career growth, but it it just seemed to be a complete slog. He was having to take any case that came his way, and how about this for a big regret? As a young lawyer of 25 years old, he ushered a new client into his office. What can I do for you, sir? Articles of incorporation, please. Fair enough. Lee gets the papers out and starts writing. The man kept talking the whole time. I just bought this recipe to this new drink. It used to be patent medicine. Mm, Okay, interesting. And people turn it into a drink. Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, sign here. People really like it. Absolutely. Of course, sir. $25, please. I could pay you $25, says the customer. How about this, though? I could instead pay you with shares of my company. It's going to be big. Mr. Lee said, I appreciate that, but I'll just go ahead and take the $25 if it's all the same to you. Ouch. The client was Mr. Asa Candler. The product was Coca-Cola, and it is very safe to say that our Mr. Lee would have fared slightly better by taking the deal, but <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. It's okay. It's okay. He landed on his feet another way. He had moved to Chicago to teach and sort of reset his law career. Less than a year after they first met, 
19-year-old Francis and 30-year-old Blewett were married at her parents' house. Now, this house, you can fit 100 people to dine there, not in the dining room, but across the house. But they also had, of course, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra playing for their wedding. I mean, there was a society affair. One of the things her parents did was have two identical three-story houses built just blocks away from them in the same Tony neighborhood for both of their children and their families. So they were all together nearby. It was almost immediately rough going. I think it was mandatory, you know, all this financial support from the in-laws. If we were going to keep up our fancy lifestyle, it had to have an influx of cash from the in-laws who were happy to give it. But that does kind of take in this time and place, you know, that's that's that hurts your machismo. But, you know, what else is he going to do? And also for Francis, you move out of your parents' house to have an independent establishment of your own, which you don't have because you're financially dependent on your parents and you're within baseball throwing distance of them. Right. So they're all up in your business and in your pocket all the time. That said, the couple was sort of at odds just personality wise. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was a Christian Southern man whose father was a Confederate soldier And she was raised in a very liberal, progressive household in the North. I mean, just on the surface, there's going to be some kind of tension. Speaking of those miniatures that you like to see, Beckett, one of their neighbors in this new two houses next to each other was Narcissa Thorne, who was the designer of a very popular exhibit at the Art Institute Museum now, the Thorne Miniature Rooms. It's huge. There's a whole floor that's just these miniature rooms, one after another. She was a neighbor of theirs. You can see things sliding into place in the background. This is what's called foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. Less than a year after they had gotten married, their son, John, was born. She suffered from an amazing uh, case of postpartum depression, if I'm going to diagnose it from here, that no one was very sympathetic to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel very bad from here. Their relationship continued contentious. That's the nicest thing I can say about it. And five years later, right after her daughter Frances was born, literally, if you include Brother George's family, there's three Johns, four Francises, and a George. No wonder George's (laughs) best friend had to be named George. He felt left out. (laughs) Right after Frances was born, Blewett left and got an apartment. It does sound like he was a very attentive father, and he stayed close with Frances's family. They adored Blewett. Her parents absolutely adored him. They did not understand what the problem was. He was such a polite young man. He loved his children. Take him back. So she did. And two years later, they had a very brief reconciliation that resulted in a third child named Martha. But then the marriage was over. It would be another seven years before the divorce was finalized. But right after Martha's birth is pretty much when they ended things officially. Yeah, at the time, it seemed that desertion was the only grounds for a woman to bring a divorce case. And evidently, Blewett was all like, say the word and I'll come back tomorrow. It wasn't until he chose to remarry that they actually were able to finalize their divorce. So Frances's hands were tied. She found something so interesting to do with them, though. Her mama's 65th birthday was on the horizon. And what do you get the person who has everything? Well, her parents, as you remember, were deeply involved with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. 
its formation and support, of course, but even closer to home, assorted combinations of symphony musicians were hired to play at balls, dinner parties. I mean, I must say I myself had a quartet of symphony musicians at my wedding. Uh, I get it. Though no one came over to provide background music for my mac and cheese dinners as a child, you know, certainly. <laughs> right. um, it was very common for them to have musical guests who provided impromptu entertainment. Mama used to sigh, I wish I could have them around me every day. And we talked about this before. If you loved a piece of music, you had to go where the action was. The Chicago Symphony's first phonograph record is still four years away. Mendelssohn's Wedding March, the one that's like, do, 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 do. Okay, that was still four years away. And Chicago's first radio station was almost a decade in the future. Fortunately for this family, and fortunately for Mrs. Glessner, their box was right behind the conductor. So they could go anytime and have really good seats. But Frances started thinking about that. I wish I could have them with me every day. Woohoo! She had the most amazing idea and set to work creating the entire Chicago Symphony Orchestra in miniature. And we're talking painful details. Her and her son would go and watch them perform and write notes about exactly what everybody was wearing and what hairstyles looked like. The 90 musicians all had perfect tuxedos on with collars and pearl buttons and a little paper carnation. It looked like every single one of the people that were actually in the orchestra, including the conductor. And including the music that was on their stands was actually music. The conductor of the actual orchestra sort of broke his eyeballs, handwriting all of the sheet music for each tiny little player's tiny little stand. It was one of Mama's favorite songs, and each musician in this diorama had the proper score for his own instruments. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. The attention to detail was amazing. It just mind-blowing to me. So I read that some troublesome visages had to come to the house and be sketched in person. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really funny. And yeah. then, of course, I went down a rabbit hole about the Terracotta Warriors, who all are, right. I guess, all different, but not based on real people, they think. They think there's like eight base faces, and then they added things with extra clay. But they are all different, but mm -hmm. they're not all modeled on individual people. That This is a lot. This is a lot of work to make them all recognizable to each other and to themselves. Amazing. When it was presented to Mama, guess who came? A hundred people. Cook, that'll be a hundred extra people for dinner, if you please. Absolutely. <laughs> In characteristic Glessner fashion, we had to do it big. And everyone could not stop freaking out. They were amazed. They were astonished. And who at this point and at this party was to know that this would be the opening act in an endeavor that would prove to be Francis Klesner's legacy? Francis's second act with these miniatures, there was an extremely popular string quartet that was touring the world, and they were coming to Chicago. So she painstakingly created all the members of this quartet. She learned a lot of things doing the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for her mom, and she upped her game. 
She put wire in the back of their tuxedos. So they were kind of flying up. They all looked like the person. They all had the sheet music, but the sheet music they had this time, it wasn't playable. That was the joke. (laughs) And again, she had another party to unveil this to them and they were so excited. And then she gave them their little miniatures to take home as a party favor. These people know how to throw a party. World War I began, and with it, some opportunities for service. In classic fashion, she had Saturday evening social hours for sailors at her house. Unusually, she created a fundraiser called the Fingertip Theater. This fundraiser was going to benefit French children whose fathers had died as soldiers, and it was being presented at the Art Institute of Chicago, simply billed, like you said, Fingertip Theater. It was very intriguing. Live performers on a small stage? What is going to happen? Well, there was a 10-show, two-week run of this at the Art Institute. On a two-foot-by-three-foot stage, Francis's fingers took the stage and acted out in extraordinarily detailed costumes this entire play. (laughs) There was a ballet company act. There was an ice skating act. And then the grand finale, the smallest show on earth. This reminds me, by the way, of a museum called, I gotta take a breath, the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. (laughs) Anyway, it's in Lucas, Kansas. It's open April to October. And if you're ever doing either the Denver to Kansas City run, which I-70 is just like, wow, I mean, you can probably fall asleep. Or the Kansas City to Denver, it's, it's certainly accessible from there. The world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as for the fingertip theater, Chicago Papers gave it a positive review. Uh, The theme seemed to be there's no limit to Mrs. Lee's ingenuity and versatility. And the tiny scenes were perfect to the smallest detail, to which I say, you ain't seen nothing yet. As World War I ended, the military needed to be assimilated back into society. And at this point, Frances actually gets her very first paying job. It's not in Chicago. It's in Boston. And she was the manager of the Wendell House in Boston. And military personnel would come there as kind of a get assimilated back into society, use it as a home base, get a job, figure out what your next step is going to be. Now, she had the money. She could have furnished this place with high-end furniture, but she consciously made a decision to buy secondhand furniture, things that looked homey and comfortable, so that when the soldiers came in, they felt like they were at home. Right. Some of the men that came through there, and it was hundreds of them, became her lifelong correspondents, and she considered them her friends. She kept detailed records, not only of of these gentlemen, but also back in Chicago, people who would come through her house for those social evenings that you had mentioned. She kept a log. She put their names, and if they contacted her again and corresponded with her, they got a little gold star in her book. You know, she kept track of their, you know, their names, their families, their hometowns, things that were important about them so that she could reference back to it. But as the men moved back into the world and one by one, her children grew up got married and moved away, she was sort of at a loose end. Much, of course, has been made of her needlework. Girl, I know I am sort of incipient emptiness right now. And I've got this (laughs) giant piece going called The House on Elm Street. It's redonk. (laughs) And I'm never going to get it done. But whatever. It's a project. She and her oldest daughter, Frances, 
ran an antique store for a number of years called the White Schoolhouse. So uber hip long before her time. She's just kind of going from one small project to another. She decided she needed a home base when she went back to Chicago, even though her life was now on the East Coast. So she bought a 12-room apartment on Lake Michigan that had a 600-square-foot living room, three maids' rooms. It was extraordinarily opulent. It had a view of the lake. This was just her, you know, her go-away house. So she has a lot of money, and she's not quite sure what to do with it. So she's doing everything. But Frances dreamed of greater things, and she wrote, I didn't do a lick of work to deserve what I had. I've been left with an obligation to do something that will benefit everybody. I feel that I must justify my reason for being here. Frances Glessner Lee longed to make an impact. A fateful reunion brought Frances the answers she was seeking. At the age of 51, Frances took up residence in a fancy private convalescent home called Phillips House after a surgery that she'd had at Massachusetts General Hospital. And what to her wondering eyes should appear but her old friend, George II. Remember him? Mr. McGrath, brother George's best friend and companion of school days, the third musketeer. Yeah, at Phillips House, which... By the way, it's still there. It's considered, quote, deluxe hospital accommodations on their website. Amazing. Mm -hmm. The two were able to reconnect while they recuperated. Frances had the sad task of telling Mr. McGrath about her brother's untimely death after his own surgery. Frances knew all about McGrath's career as a medical examiner. Brother George had regaled the family with tales of locked room murder mysteries, of mistaken identities, of large-scale municipal accidents McGrath had been called in to analyze and untangle. He had even been one of the medical experts called after the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, which is a real thing. A five-story tall tank of molasses in Boston's North End exploded, sending over 2 million gallons, that's 25 million pounds, of a tsunami of molasses down the streets of the North End into Boston Harbor. When George had got there, it was two full city blocks covered in molasses. 20 people died and 150 were grievously injured, and he had to sort out all the different threads of the investigation and who was who, uh, identification, extrication, all of it fell under his purview. Frances had always been fascinated by these stories that her brother had told her. McGrath is a real-life Sherlock Holmes, kind of. So just like George McGrath had entertained Francis's brother, George, with these stories of cases and cases, he was doing the same for her while they recuperated. And I could only think that if it was 80 years in the future, he could have been one of the first true crime podcasters because she was fascinated by all, not just the macabre, but the things about science, how these people died, the science of death. You know, certain tissues are, look a certain way. It means one thing. It, she was fascinated by all of it. One thing that he said really sparked her. He said, I've always contended that the organs of the human body were the most decorative things in the world and would make wonderfully effective murals for a medical school or doctor's club. And Francis is thinking, the human body is beautiful underneath our skin? Yes. Really, in life, we don't know what's going to spark us for the next thing that's going to happen in our lives. And for her, it was just this one line that he said in one of many, many hours of stories that just stuck in her bonnet, it just sparked her to learn more about how the body works. 
Mr. McGrath also started telling her, you know, when you get a sympathetic listener and you want to vent about work in a safe environment, (laughs) he started telling her about his frustration with his work as a medical examiner. He was a man of science, of evidence, of following a trail to the end who happened to be under the thumb of people like district attorneys, police departments, and politicians who were more interested in getting a conviction, preventing a conviction, or getting cases closed quickly so the press didn't find out. At odds, obviously. McGrath thought it was so important that a medical examiner, whose job it was to determine the causes and and maybe the circumstances of death, he should be trained in a wide variety of background skills that medical schools just weren't able or willing to spend their energies on this. Do we have any reference material on patterns of injury? What happens to the human body when it's subjected to chemicals, to time, to fire? He had taken the time to shadow the best practitioners of what they called legal medicine, which is what we're going to call it, but is now in 2023 called forensic pathology. He had shadowed the best of the best in Europe and brought all this knowledge to bear on his own work and also to the course he was teaching to medical students at Harvard. He was renowned in the press and the public eye, the same way that, you know, CSI, the TV show, would be later. Small clues led to the answers. Did someone jump or were they pushed? How did the poison get into their system? How long was the fuse that started the fire? He became an expert witness who told it like it was. And one of the frustrating things that he found was, as a medical examiner who had a background in medicine, he had gone to medical school, he was able to determine these things as a medical examiner. But there were very few of them out in the United States. Most counties, cities had coroner systems. And a coroner didn't necessarily have a medical background. It was a political appointment. And the whole coroner system was rife with, um, what's that word? Well, nepotism, buddy appointments. This was something you would give a guy who needed a little bit of cash. Somebody's son just got out of college. It was like a nothing job. I mean, and there was things that were happening. Like there was a case where there was a baby that died and one coroner got it and processed it. And a funeral home paid that coroner for the opportunity to take this baby. And then the baby got got placed again out in the field so another police officer could find it and another coroner could get the money from a funeral parlor. So they're just manipulating the system for personal financial gain with people's bodies. And McGrath was very intent on being honest on the stand and would tell this to his students. If the law has made you a witness, remain a man of science. You have no victim to avenge, no guilty person to convict, and no innocent person to save. You must bear testimony within the limits of science. In contrast to the cockamamie pay-for-play system that was going on with expert witnesses in courts all over America. Well, McGrath made a lot of enemies by calling this out. Police often bungled the crime scenes, moving bodies, tidying up, walking through or ignoring blood patterns, just looking for a case closer. And McGrath wanted to get all this information out, and he was giving lectures, but to medical students, it was just a tiny part of their medical training. So it wasn't even like a course of study. And his impact, these things that he wanted to get out into the world, were not getting there through lectures to a limited number of people. And I just really feel like we can't go into details here about some of his more high-profile cases. This is a high-profile man, just due to the sheer violence and, and shock value of them. In fact, the case of Florence Small, if you would like to Google, too much for me to even 
tell you. I mean, they in fact asked all of the women to leave the courtroom before producing the evidence, if that gives you an idea of what was happening in that case. But our Francis was fascinated by all of it. The background knowledge required, the quest for truth, the experimentation, the whole goal of, you know, justice. She even accompanied him to an autopsy. Right. They're having these conversations, you know, in the hospital, but they take it beyond when they both recuperated. And she's going with him and she's seeing all this happening, all these autopsies, and she's completely fascinated and asking questions and learning things for what use she doesn't know, but she just wants to learn it. McGrath took a look at his friend and just got so frustrated. I wish I could get through to everyone the way I can get to you, Francis. I mean, I mm-hmm. this has been amazing. It's hard to get a jury to follow along. And a little light dawned in Francis and she asked, hey, what if during your cases you had a little model of a room and you could dress a doll like the victim and all of the other details and you could present that to the jury? look at the crime scene. And he said, they won't even let me bring in photographs. This is how backward we are. So let me think about it. But I really think they're if they won't let photographs in, they're not going to let art in. But that's a really good idea. Just as some light reading, he gave her a report from the National Research Council. It was called, quote, the coroner and the medical examiner. And she plowed through this document like it was her Bible almost, just learning things with every paragraph. And while she's learning, she's thinking, what can I do to make this happen on a grander scale than McGrath is doing? And she's just thinking and thinking. And she said, quote, first, I am and always have been a lone worker and have never found it satisfactory to work at something that has been gone over and over by others until the original meaning and spirit have all been worn out of it. So what she's saying is, I need to invent a wheel here. How does that wheel going to work? She approached Harvard with an offer they couldn't refuse. How about this? I would like for you to create a brand new department in your medical school called the Department of Legal Medicine with a full professor attached to it. The first would be Dr. McGrath. I will provide a certain amount of money a year and then 250000 in my will for this um, with me as Dr. McGrath's teaching assistant, BT Debs. Like on the end. (laughs) In addition, true to her pattern of getting completely focused on whatever project she took on, Frances had begun to collect every piece of published material she could find on poisons, herbs, injury, pharmacopias, autopsies, crime, police work, anything even vaguely rabbit holy. I know (laughs) that's not a word. And she wanted to donate all of this to Harvard as the George McGrath Library of Legal Medicine. She got together with some folks she knew in Chicago who had established a medical examiner system there. She connected them with the Massachusetts Medical Examiner Society. And together, these people, with her involved in it, created an exhibit at the second Chicago World's Fair in 1934 called A Century of Progress. So it was here, actually, that the term forensic medicine was first used, and she was involved in getting that to the fair. And with those people from the World's Fair, she was able to present an extensive plan for the techniques of creating a whole fully funded, from the ground up, Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard. And Harvard basically said, internal memo-wise, give this donor anything she wants. And thus, it shall be done. And you'll notice in newspaper articles of the time, they give McGrath the spotlight and they call her, quote, the donor. 
Oh, um, to tell you, it didn't just in the paper articles from the time, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. At this point, because of her, her upbringing, she was hoping to kind of remain in the background. I will say that. So if she's not in all the newspaper articles as anything other than the donor, that could have been partially her doing right. at this point. Right. Well, she laid out faculty, coursework, organization of fellowships for medical students so they can specialize, details of the lab, a whole x-ray department, thanks Marie Curie, a photo studio. The director of the medical school was so impressed that he called her the Lucretia Mott of legal medicine. <laughs> That's and a then nice he title. also called her practical and pertinacious, which I even had to look up, which means intent on a certain course of action, not to be turned to the side. <laughs> Frances was raised in a society family. She knew a lot of guys. You know, she knows a guy who does this and that and the other thing. So she's used to introducing herself and finding out what people do and figuring out ways that they can help her or she can connect them to somebody who can. When she was 57, Frances called on the director of the FBI, of course she did, one J. Edgar Hoover, to try to convince him of the merits of training FBI agents in forensic medicine, which I'm sure he's like, what is happening here? But if they didn't wish to get on board with training their associates, our laboratories are at your disposal in the future. Please call on us in times of need, which friends, the department does not exist yet. <laughs> It doesn't exist yet. Harvard had been dragging its feet, and finally, Francis had to lay down an ultimatum. Look, I've drafted but not signed a million-dollar legacy to Harvard. I expect to see progress, or I shall withdraw and look for greener pastures. <laughs> Harvard regarded that ultimatum with a sense of dismay. The chief of the medical school actually wrote that he, it was his unfortunate luck, and I quote, to be the chairman of a committee to consider the future of legal medicine in Harvard University. You, of course, know the reason, which is a very good chance of securing considerable endowments from Mrs. Lee. Mm. You know, I get it. He is being dragged somewhere against his will by his purse strings, you know, and I get it. He, You know, he doesn't want to take on this project, but he really, really has to. Part of the reason for Francis's haste, both she and Dr. McGrath were in dicey states of health. At this point, she underwent a surgery that she was fearful she wouldn't survive, though ultimately she recovered to full strength. But Dr. McGrath was so frail and ill that Harvard actually hired another man, a young Dr. Moritz, as the chairman and sent him to Europe for training for years, hoping this would be enough to pacify Francis for the time being financially. Francis and George McGrath had had this long relationship. It was, as far as I can tell, perfectly platonic, but they were very close. And she began crafting a gift for her friend. It was a 400-page book entitled Anatomography, Anatomography, Anatomography in Pictures, Verse, and Music. And that anatomography word that I can't... And <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just going to leave this in instead of putting it at the end. Animatography word, she said it was, quote, a coined word of her minting and therefore presumably counterfeit. <laughs> but it was a portmanteau, you know, kind of like podcast, which is a combination of iPod and broadcast. But this book that she created, it was written and illustrated by her. And it is in a poem form, 400 pages 
about this Indian deity who comes to Boston, and she's able to work in all these facts about George McGrath's life, as well as every single part of the human body. She works it into this poem and these illustrations and these footnotes that she writes on the side of the page. 400 pages. There were botanically coded messages throughout their fingerprints were integrated into some paintings of flowers. And that's the things that we know about. What other inside jokes that only they knew about or inside information or something? It was really not just a lot of detailed work, but so much thought went into each page of this book. This self-imposed endeavor required years of intricate and elaborate preparation. This girl needs a project at all times. This is what she said. I read voraciously for years in more than a dozen libraries. I have worked in museums. I have employed special photographers. I have gathered material wherever it was to be found. I have studied anatomy, physiology, medicine, volumes on bookmaking and bookbinding, on illuminated manuscripts and lettering, lives of the saints, books on art, on precious stones, on color, on symbolism, on music, on botany, on fish, accounts of savages, their beliefs and customs, histories of ancient religion and cultures, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Greek, Roman, up through the Middle Ages, all through the Indian civilizations in the Americas to the present time and place. This lady loves a rabbit hole. The internet would have broken her mind. Oh, my gosh. No kidding. Wow. If there had been computers, maybe she could have invented it. I mean, and you know, there's an irony to her having put years of her life, all of her creativity, and every hour of her waking life into this project. Unfortunately, he never saw all that work she did. Because Dr. George McGrath passed away suddenly in December of 1938 at the age of 68. We skipped over a few things just for narrative purposes, but look at her life right now. In a very short period of time, she has lost her brother, her mother, her daughter died, her father, and now George McGrath. Like the core of her life, these people are all gone. So Francis felt doubly compelled to ramp up all of her advocacy toward eliminating the corrupt, inefficient coroner system in America and igniting the well-educated system of medical examiners. She felt like at last she had her life's work in front of her. February 1940, when Francis was 62, at last, the Department of Legal Medicine was officially open at Harvard. Progress at first was, shall we say, glacial. Local (laughs) law enforcement greatly resisted and resented any attempts of the um, experts at Harvard to interfere in cases, sometimes hurriedly cleaning up crime scenes as Mr. Moritz was en route to look at them. A famous case years later included every facet of the forensic pathologist's playbook, materials testing, the life cycle of insects, 
botany, along with the usual police work of alibis, interrogation, the classic motives, means, opportunity. Moritz did his best. He pulled out all the tools. No, the likely murderer was acquitted. It was frustrating. Slow start. However, 10% of the cases that were thought to be accidental turned out after Moritz's investigation to be homicide. That's certainly not nothing. No, and that's what he's supposed to be doing is deciding how a person died. He's doing his job and people are starting to learn. He has students. So Francis began these two-day seminars for the local police departments. She went up and down the state and with so much help that she was commissioned as an official captain in the New Hampshire State Police in 1943. She was the first woman to ever hold that position. And later writers might have said, well, that's an honorarium. Oh, no. Literally, she was given, and I quote, general police power to enforce all criminal laws of the state of New Hampshire. She was so delighted and proud of that, that she always carried her badge with her and referred to herself in correspondence as Captain Lee. The New Hampshire State Police aren't the only ones that are bestowing this title on her. Eventually, she would have the title in Connecticut, Delaware, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Vermont, Virginia, and the city of Chicago. And Kentucky even went further and made her a major. Wow. Whoa. At this point, she is not exactly a picture of health. She has an enlarged heart. She has hypothyroidism, glaucoma. She has some hearing loss, arthritis in her knee, and an entire laundry list of other conditions. And her doctor suggested that, you know, slow down. Did she? She did not. She did not. (laughs) Instead, she decided to ramp it up. Look at this success. Look who is responding positively at last. Maybe bringing the police in more thoroughly was the answer. There was literally no place, not one place for police to learn the fundamentals of forensic medicine. I mean, there were police academies, but they didn't (laughs) cover these subjects. She was asked to tour police departments and sort of see what was needed. And you and I know her very well now, knowing she kept very, very thorough notes. And after several sort of overly ambitious failed attempts, Francis settled on offering a one-week intensive class geared mostly to practical crime scene protection and interpretation. But you can't use a crime scene in class for obvious reasons. You can't hold up an investigation, for one, and the proper sort of crime scene can't always be conveniently committed on schedule. She thought back to her time with George McGrath and the problems that he had in explaining to juries what had happened at crime scenes. And she thought back even farther to her miniatures of the musicians that she had created for her mom and for the musicians themselves. And she thought, oh, aha, that's what I'm going to do. She would make scale models inspired by actual cases with red herrings. That's a technical term for fake clue with actual (laughs) clues at a level of detail far above the triumphs that she had achieved before with the symphony and the other musicians. 
Francis enlisted the help of a Mr. Moser, a carpenter, who is going to be with her for the rest of his life, helping her with this project. And they together worked on making these completely detailed dioramas of murder scenes. They're not dollhouses. She didn't want to make them cute at all. They were very basic homes. It wasn't an exact case, but it was based on those cases that she knew that McGrath had done. And she put little details of those cases into her dioramas. She outlined her requirements. I need some little rooms. Realistic. Bring your smallest hand tools. Come out to my country estate and set up shop. She's doing all this work up in New Hampshire. Her workshop is a four-story farmhouse with an elevator, and it is just packed with supplies that she probably never would have needed. More little toy cars than she's ever going to need. Doll heads and fabrics and just items that are going to work in any diorama. She doesn't even know what one. Just plan ahead. The first diorama was a barn, a case of accidental death, though the staging of both the actual event and the smaller version upon first sight looked like self-inflicted harm. Yes, that's all I'm going to say about that. So that was the question. Was this an accident or not? That was what you were supposed to answer by looking at that. The realism, okay, we are going to lead you to this book that goes into such, such detail photographically of all these dioramas that realism will blow you away. As they went on to make other scenarios, the custom work is almost unbelievable. Mr. Mosher had to make the nails himself out of wire so they'd be at scale because nails did not exist at that scale. She hired artists to paint product labels and calendars and little oil paintings for over the sofas. And kind of like in the book that she had made for George McGrath, she put actual things into these dioramas that were based on things she knew. For instance, her little cottage was a painting over a fireplace. Like She wanted that much accuracy that, oh, they would have a painting of a cottage. Here it is. The mouse traps work. I mean, yeah. if there was a mouse that little, it would be in big right. trouble. Yeah, it was amazing. But one thing that she had trouble with, you can source some miniatures from miniaturists, but a lot of the furniture makers, of course, the economics of this being what it is, focused on Versailles level miniatures, if you know what I'm saying. Like everybody's mm -hmm. working in the high quality, like Colleen Moore's dollhouse that's coincidentally in Chicago at the Chicago <laughs> Museum of Science and Industry. Highly recommend going there. We'll give you a link to that exhibit or Queen Mary's dollhouse. Like, no, she didn't want anything to look out of place. She needed lower middle class or middle class that they might have gotten at a flea market or had inherited or found by the side of the road. She did go to the extent of writing to the Forestry Commission for types of wood whose grain would make sense in the scale of her dollhouses. She did not leave a stone unturned. And when she found materials that might work at some point, she got them and just stored them away, keeping, of course, meticulous records of where they were stored. The knitted items are knitted to scale. Corks come out of bottles. Yeah, she's knitting with little pins. You know, on the other scale, there was a woman who knitted herself a fence. Have you ever seen that out of like black ship rope? No, I don't think so. No. So yeah, you can go teeny tiny and you can go big, big. She like, I'm yeah, going to sure. find that. I'll, I'll, I'm going to send it to you because there's a lady that went the other way. And I think her knitting needles were like almost like baseball bat size. 
Well, anyway, the pencils in Francis's would really write, you know, that kind of thing. Even the people, she took a special pains on the people. They even were wearing underwear. Frankly, that's amazing. Even if no one saw them, the knowledge was they're dressed like people would be dressed. She took a special pains to select fabric whose weave would drape properly at that scale. An arson scene, this kind of breaks my heart, carefully, carefully reenacted in exacting detail, and then she blowtorched the dickens out of it. Right. I hope Mr. Mosher was out of the room for that one. (laughs) No kidding. I love that she took all her knowledge of pathology and medicine that she had accumulated over the years and was so exact and like skin color of someone who had been dead for a week for instance. Yeah. She made sure that that model had that. Or a cut, what did it look like? Blood spatters on the wall. You know, they were painted. It looks like a spatter, but no, she's meticulously painting where it goes because there's a reason. She's designing a crime that hadn't really happened. This is, in her words, the lens that she used for all of this. My own interest in crime detection is not so much the angle of bringing criminals to justice as it is in establishing scientifically the true facts of the case so no innocent man is railroaded by an incomplete or misleading evidence into paying for a crime he never committed. So that's what she's wanting people to learn. What, what happened? Not who did it, but how did it happen? So she wrote blithely. I think this is so funny. She wrote to Mr. Moritz, like, just casually. Here, <laughs> I just love this. I have, in prospect or completed, two hangings, two shootings, two assaults with one weapon, one natural cause when drowning, one found dead, one arson. How was that gentleman killed? Um, Give me some suggestions. And one poison. You know what I need is more traffic accidents. Hit and run, collision, some good evidence, another shooting, a stabbing. Carbon monoxide would be good. And a couple of puzzling found deads. Could you send those over to me? <laughs> Is that hilarious? Like, what if you were the postman and you opened that? Like, what is happening? (laughs) Well, she began to refer to these little dioramas as the nutshells. This is based on a saying that police captains had told his police officers and investigators, not just he, them. This is what they said. They would say, convict the guilty, clear the innocent, and find the truth in a nutshell. So they were the nutshell studies of unexplained death. Each of the models cost tens of thousands of modern money to make. But again, referring to Colleen Moore's glorious dollhouse, that cost half a million dollars. So we are functionally getting a bargain. Right. You know, when 1945 came, the war was over and it was time for the glorious seminar that she had planned. She had, during her previous trips through police departments all along the East Coast, had taken notes of likely candidates, people that seemed interested, young man of promise. Unfortunately, if you were near retirement, she ruthlessly crossed your name off because you couldn't possibly use the, I mean, you know, fair enough, fair enough. But how sad if you wanted to come. The police departments themselves had to cover the travel and the course costs for their policemen. And she figured it was better to have the departments invest which would lead them to valuing the information that their people obtained. And the whole purpose was their people were going to get educated at this seminar and then bring it back to their police departments and educate other detectives or police officers and help to spread the word that way. So it wasn't just the one guy. It was the one guy and anybody that he talked to back home. 
the opening salvo of the weekend, they saw an autopsy performed. Well, there's nothing like jumping in the deep end. They covered burns, electrical, chemical, scalding, external, poison, swallowed, inhaled, or absorbed, the effects of different diseases, the effects of time, of water, the importance of crime scene preservation, all of which was, of course, brought home when they then had the chance to study the nutshells. Each little group was assigned one, and they had 90 minutes to observe and take notes. She would answer certain questions, but not others, and... The nutshells were not necessarily something to be solved, like a crossword puzzle, but she was trying to train them to observe everything, to evaluate the evidence of their eyes, and not to come to a crime scene or a nutshell with a preconceived notion of what they were going to find. Because if you've ever bought, say, a new car, you suddenly see that new car everywhere you go. Your mind is primed to see that car or your spelling words. If you're a little kid, you know, you get a list of spelling words. They're in every book that you pick up. Same thing happens when a policeman goes to a crime scene looking for certain factors. That's what they're going to find. At the end of this seminar, each attendee was awarded a certificate of membership to the Harvard Associates of Police Science and given a pin and HAPS, H-A-P-S, Harvard Associates of Police Science, pin to wear on their lapel as having completed this course. And then she hearkened herself back to her early days as a Gilded Age heiress and threw the attendees a massive party at the Ritz. I want to tell you that dinner for 40 in the Ritz-Carlton cost her $25,000. I don't even know that I could try that. Evidently, the floral arrangements themselves were way up there. Right. Well, she had China made specifically at $8,000. This is $1945 just for this event. And it was stored at the Ritz just for her so that when she has another seminar, they bring it out. Yeah. You know, psychologically, she's very astute. The word Harvard on the diplomas that they went home with, the word Harvard referred to on the pen they were wearing in public really let these policemen know that they had now procured membership in an elite force. And they were also encouraged to treat it as a brotherhood, like almost like a good old boy network. Others who in the future would graduate from this program were their compatriots, you know, and and you should reach across the state lines and collaborate. It was so smart. So smart. Right. Oh, so much. And she's imagining this almost spider web of information that was going to blanket the United States through these members of the Harvard Associates of Police Science. Attendees went home fired up fired up and shared what they had learned. And in many cases, they were able to use specific things they had learned back home in their own departments. Frances began to hold these meetings twice yearly. By 1949, she began to include female officers. How's that for outreach? And the male police officer attendees took that concept back to their home departments, too. It did take the press a few years to get wind of what was going on there at Harvard. But once they did and they realized that Frances, this, she looks like Mrs. Claus, you know, is in charge of teaching people how people died. The press got their hands on it and ran with it. The very first headline about her said, it's murder, she says, which sure sounds an awful lot like it's murder, she wrote. That was my mom's absolute favorite show of all time. 
was it? Uh, well, it's there's legend that Jessica Fletcher was based on Francis Klesner Lee. I can 30 see it. years later. I can, yeah, I can totally yep. see it. Life magazine did a whole pictorial article about the nutshell studies, which, of course, was great exposure for her larger goal of expanding the reach of legal medicine. Personally, though, it was not awesome. She was sort of regarded as, quote, that rich old lady with the macabre dollhouses. Right. Well, she was gracious at the time. You know, whatever attention is good attention. It's fine. <laughs> you know, anyone well. who knows my involvement and what's really going on already knows. And those are the people I'm concerned about. You know, whatever brings attention. But a movie that she championed, she thought of and approached MGM, which started out called Murder at Harvard, but Harvard kind of quailed at that. So it got changed to Mystery Street about the Cape Cod police collaborating with Harvard's legal medicine department. Moritz was the main character in this script yeah. that they wrote. Francis was in an original draft of the script, but by the shooting draft, Francis was completely missing. Now, I'm going to say that could have been her wanting to back out of that level of publicity although I doubt it. <laughs> but, you know, it's a possibility. Yeah. The movie had literally been her idea in, in the first place. And so in my, in my view, she was done very dirty. But it was a genre creator. This is the first procedural. You know, it's the, it's the forerunner of CSI. It's the forerunner of Murder, She Wrote. And my mother also loved this show called Quincy, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. from Quincy, M.E. Yeah. Medical Examiner. Medical Examiner. The public had developed a taste for scientific investigation, which should not surprise you because if you think of the popularity of Sherlock Holmes, he was also very like, here's an obscure clue and how does it fit into the big picture? We need to observe and here's what I've observed. I mean, it, people mm -hmm. were primed for this. Yeah, they're reading Agatha Christie mysteries and learning about poison. Right. Well, I'm glad to say that she got a little redemption. The author of the Perry Mason mystery books had started sort of a cold case file project outside of his writing group. Um, it was called The Court of Last Resort, kind of like The Innocence Project. And he really, really lobbied to be let into one of Francis's seminars. Um, he was a very popular author. I hmm, hate to take a space that could have been used by a policeman, but he might be good for publicity for the concept of legal medicine. So he arrived. And she got after him immediately for in his books, making the police so incompetent, you know, mm -hmm. like, look around you, get with the program. <laughs> yeah, that's a cliched stereotype that is not necessary. These guys are wanting to learn the science and the medicine and they're thorough investigators. They're not bumbling idiots. Earl Gardner dedicated the book, The Case of the Dubious Bridegroom, to Captain Francis G. Lee with the following words. I have dedicated this book to her as an expression of my appreciation and in admiration of the manner in which her mind, working with the accurate precision of a railroad watch, has brought into existence the overall plan of a course of training that is helping to make the competent state police official as much a professional as the doctor or lawyer. And one of the few women who ever kept Perry Mason guessing. <laughs> <laughs> so he came in police are bumbling doofuses. He left a change man. Mm -hmm. um, he actually dedicated further books to Moritz and to George McGrath. Francis asked the publisher of The Case of the Dubious Bridegroom to print some of the book very, very small to scale. And guess what she did? She put it into a nutshell model. <laughs> 
This is the level of respect in the police community that she was getting. She had to go to a wedding in Connecticut from her home in New Hampshire. She had a police escort from her house in New Hampshire all the way to the Massachusetts state line. Then the Massachusetts state police took over and took her to the Connecticut state line where they handed her off to the Connecticut state police (laughs) to get to the wedding. So they respect what she's doing. Her fame grew. Yeah, and it was keeping her so busy. She was traveling. She was speaking and teaching in different areas, and she's still learning. She's not just focused on the United States. She went abroad as well. She went to the UK to learn from their long-established medical examiner's offices, and she wrote a letter to her son that said, went to Windsor to see the Queen's dollhouse, a remarkable affair. I think I could have done better. That's Queen Mary's dollhouse. That's so famous. So famous. Um, (laughs) Moritz decided to leave the department back home. And his replacement, though a qualified scientist, did not have the quest for fire to promote the expansion or the development of the legal medicine department. In addition, Harvard was being weird and squirrely about her involvement there. Rather than feeling valued... Francis began to feel like they regarded her as sort of a nuisance they had to tolerate because of the future money they expected to get from her will. Mm. Some of them hated the concept of opening the seminars to city police. Like, oh, are these people are going to set foot on here now on our hallowed ground? These low status individual state police were bad enough. And now you're dragging our name down? And so, in response, Frances withdrew financial support from the legal medicine department. You know, she had fully intended to donate the valuable nutshell studies to Harvard and thought about withdrawing them, too. She punished them for not allowing, quote, her boys to come on the campus or for giving her stick about it. And she's like, look, I'm paying for all of this. What business is it of yours? Well, I'm so, so sorry to say that Frances's cancer came back when she was 73 years old. And She really wanted to protect her seminars just in case for the future and established both a foundation with trustees she could, well, trust and gave (laughs) them specific warnings about Harvard in particular. For the past 20 years, I have given all my time and energy and thought, indeed, all my waking hours to the effort to establish securely legal medicine in the United States. Harvard has the reputation of being old fogeyish and ungrateful and stupid, and I have indeed found this reputation to be deserved. And she was being very realistic. To the board of the Francis Glessner Lee Trust, she said, While I know it's said that there's no one in the world whose place cannot be filled, still I believe that legal medicine will take something of a slump when I die. For though I say it myself, I have had enthusiasm, willingness, patience, courage, and persistence, and believe my personality has been effective in what I have been trying to accomplish. So she knew that when she was gone, things were going to happen. Right. Arrangements, at least in the immediate aftermath of those instructions, proved happily unnecessary. She recovered. Um, She had a full schedule of conferences, papers to edit, friends over to stay, and wrote in her journal a sentiment that I literally just sort of realized after we got back from France. In the day-to-day living, she said, it is unwise to let it become entirely utilitarian. Some of the graces must be included or one would go completely to seed. And I just said, I got to start drinking the water out of the cut crystal. 
I have to start using the silver. And there is an irony. The more you use silver, the less you have to polish it. I mean, there should be a lesson in that. (laughs) That's a great lesson. Um, I think she did a really good job throughout her life of bringing that to point. For instance, in the 1950s, the state of New Hampshire put a highway through the Rocks property. She tried to fight it, but she lost the battle. So when the workers came to do the work, she just greeted them on the property like the hostess she is. She wrote another letter to her son. I had them come up to lunch two weeks ago and gave them a swell meal. We had some drinks all around before lunch, and I drank to them individually and by name and added, down with the highway department. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be like that. I love it. The last police conference she was able to run and attend was in the fall of 1961. And unfortunately, right after that, her health began to fail precipitously. Her cancer began to spread rapidly through her body. And on January 27th, 1962, Frances Glessner Lee died at her home and was buried at the Maple Street Cemetery in Bethlehem, New Hampshire, with a strong police presence to honor her. And kind of as she predicted, her work crumbled at Harvard. Yeah, after her death, the Department of Legal Medicine that she had worked on just fell apart, just fell apart, almost with relief. They closed it down, combined the library with their other library, combined the department with Department of Pathology, dispersed all of her work. Luckily, for irony, Frances had realized which way the wind had been blowing and had left Harvard. Nothing. Nothing. Although they did keep all of her books and they also kept, she had donated a beautiful custom-made Steinway piano. It was living in the president's house and they kept it for many, many years. And only recently did the Glessner House get it back. Harvard was very happy to part with the remaining nutshell studies. During Francis's lifetime, there had been a leak in the roof of the building where the nutshell studies were stored, and some of the nutshell studies suffered severe damage. She actually fixed what she could, and after her death, Harvard still had 18 of the nutshell studies, which they were happy to donate to the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office. The one called Two Rooms, which was sort of a live action spot the differences, was ruined beyond repair. That roof collapsed and it got full of water and mold grew everywhere and eh. And so that was a bummer. That was a bummer. They'd lost one after all that work. And then as the years pass, 2017, something happened. The estate called The Rocks had been donated by Francis's children to the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. And a worker there named Claire Brown was going under the eaves. You know the part in an attic in an old house where it comes to a point and a lot of stuff just gets stuffed back there. She was cleaning out a bunch of junk and saw to her surprise, hey, what is this? It's a miniature room. It was a previously unknown nutshell, number 20, called Sitting Room and Woodshed. Along with its 18 surviving brethren, number 20 was sent to the conservators at the Smithsonian Institute for repair and revitalization. And then it was part of an extraordinary and unique exhibition that has never been repeated. Um, We'll give you a link As a matter of fact, there's a link to news coverage of the exhibition, so there's also video. 
an exhibition called Murder is Her Hobby that ran for three months at the Smithsonian and then, all but number 20, vanished from public view. They are not allowed to be exhibited. They are still used in training. And to have too much known about them is thought to reduce their usefulness in training police forces. So that means that the Francis Glessner Lee seminars and homicide investigation are still being held. The attendees get their Harvard Associates in Police Science certificate and lapel pin, although Harvard, again, got a little snippy about the use of their name. And on anything that it's printed on, it has to say, not affiliated with Harvard University. There you go. As to her overarching goal, that of bringing the profession of medical examiner to the forefront of her boosterism of legal medicine or forensic pathology, as we would call it now, 22 states now have medical examiners as opposed to coroners, but there are no federal rules, no framework set up. Um, It's a patchwork. It's just a patchwork of departments that don't really follow the same playbook. There's a lack of funding, a lack of training, and a lack of facilities. It's still an uphill battle. It's hard to attract medical students to this career, especially pathologists who can command great, great salaries in the private sector. Right. Well, you and I actually have a friend, Lindsay Taylor. She said I could use her name. She is a senior crime scene analyst in a very big city in the United States. And she said that this just made me happy. 54% of CSI field workers are female, and in her department, 91% are female. She's a trainer. She trains new recruits in the department. Usually, they have at least an associate's degree, but most of the department has advanced degrees. They have to take a 12-week course before they're even set out into the field. What Lindsay's department has is super high-tech equipment. And those nutshell studies, she and her colleagues are able to create it in 3D computer on a computer. I have to say that the use of computers and also the concept of DNA has Mm -hmm. really increased maybe the usability and distribution of the information that Lindsay and her colleagues are able to collect. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to perpetuate that every single medical examiner's office is not well-funded because some of them are, and those are in states that are really interested in, you know, the law (laughs) and making sure that things happen properly. And the future development of this field is, as of now, a mystery. Now it's time for media and you should hang on through the media section because at the end we have some exciting news on all of our field trips for 2024. I'm giddy. (laughs) Okay. But first let's start with books. Something else that makes us very giddy. The biography is called 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of Francis Glessner Lee and the Invention of Modern Forensics by Bruce Goldfarb. I loved it. 
Yeah, he actually used to be the person who controlled access for the press to the nutshell studies. And so through his exposure to them and just hearing little snippets from the visitors, he got so intrigued and kind of like the creation of this podcast, felt a cold wash of dread, like, oh no, I guess I have to write it. And so, you know, this is a man writing the book from the inside. Right. Highly, highly recommend. And I actually had it both in print form and audio, and I liked both equally. And now the other main, main book um, is called The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And it is a coffee table book for a certain kind of coffee table. I will tell you, there is a little teeny tiny murder scene right on the front cover. And then the title page has a very graphic image of a gentleman in peril. That's all I'm saying about that. But <laughs> I would say it's definitely worth checking out if it's at your library. I had to buy it, but it is a very in-depth look. I don't 100% think Francis Glessner really would approve of this book because it actually outs all the details. So all these things we've been talking about, you know, the hand printed wallpaper, the teeny tiny rolling pin, the tiny, tiny appropriately labeled can of beer, like everything is there mm -hmm. in great detail. I just really think that's a rabbit hole worth falling down. Oh, definitely. And each of the studies has what the participants would get, like the interviews with witnesses and different things that the police officers might have seen. So you get it all in this book. I don't know if it's all now that I say that. I hope they held some back. But I thought it was a beautiful book. I also had to buy it. And I think I'm going to send it to my friend Lindsay out in her CSI office. I think she'll oh. she has the coffee table for it. <laughs> Excellent. Another book that I had picked up is called Francis Glessner Lee and the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death by William Tyre. What it was was a lecture that he gave. It's printed into a very small book with photographs, but it's notable because he's the executive director of the Glessner House in Chicago. So presumably he'd be in the know. And there was a lot of photos in there that I hadn't seen anywhere else. I picked it up there, so I don't know where else you can get it. I thought it was a great little book for a general overview of her life with pictures. Another book that I keep borrowing so often from the library that I just went ahead and bought a copy myself, it's a graphic nonfiction called Brazen, Rebel Ladies Who Rocked the World by Penelope Beggio. And it's just adorable. It's exactly what it says. It's a compilation of little essays about each person, and it's got a lot of women in there. For a little background on the concept of legal medicine from the Cambridge History of Medicine is a series of essays edited by Michael Clark and Catherine Crawford, and it goes all the way back to the 17th century. So how society used to treat the mental ill, legal ramifications of their care, coroner's inquests, unexplained death of children, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It is definitely for someone who has a stronger stomach as it just lays it out there, but it actually is interesting to see the kind of growth of the realization that this branch of both the legal profession and the medical profession, you know, the birth of this concept. There are a million books about forensic science and the history of it out there. But the one that I liked was A Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age, New York. So it's very specific. I really liked I was listening to it on audio in my car and I drove up to my favorite coffee truck you know, where you can order from the car. And the barista was like, oh my gosh, what are you listening to? A true crime podcast? And I was like, no, it's a book. And she was so fascinated. She's like sticking her ear out the trailer to listen to a little bit. So there's a endorsement. <laughs> Amazing. And as to video, you can catch an episode of the famous show NCIS. It's season 17, episode 17. Not only are the nutshell studies of unexplained death 
basically the whole subject of the show. I just, I, I don't know what to say, not to spoil you, but <laughs> there is also a podcast fandom involved. It couldn't be a more perfect episode for me, <laughs> for me to call out. No Hooray. And as mentioned before, video coverage from CBS of the Smithsonian exhibition, Murder is Her Hobby, um, that will be found on YouTube. We'll give you a link to that. There is also a documentary you can find at least snippets of right now on YouTube called Of Dolls and Murder. You can go visit Francis's life, sort of. First, if you're in Chicago, the Glessner House is open for tours, but you can also go um, online. They have a beautiful virtual tour, so you can tour around this house. It's just beautiful. And the other place you can go is The Rocks in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Now, in 2019, there was a fire that destroyed two of the buildings, so they've been in renovation since. But on November 18th, which is just a couple days from when this episode is going to appear, they will open up again to sell Christmas trees. You can go there. There's all kinds of trails and educational programs. It's owned and managed by the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. That was actually donated to them with the proviso that they keep a crop on the site at all times, and the crop they chose all those years ago was Christmas trees. Like, can you imagine going to New Hampshire, getting your tree, taking a horse-drawn carriage ride, getting hot cocoa or hot cider or whatever they're serving? I like it a lot. <laughs> now, closer to my home, certainly, it's actually closer to my home than any grocery store is. <laughs> my priorities are in order. The National Museum of Toys and Miniatures if you are anywhere near Kansas City, this is definitely a place to see. I will forgive them for having a newer model speak and spell mounted in the display than what I had as a child. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. But they have a giant collection of dollhouses from all eras, uh, miniature rooms. Now you've heard about them. You should come see them. In fact, they have the English Cotswold Cottage from Narcissa Niblick. There on the premises. So her neighbor in Chicago, the famous miniaturist, one of her works is actually down here at this museum. That was one my parents insisted on going to every time they came to town. Mm -hmm. that, that tells you how interesting it is. And admission is only $10. It's totally worth it. Definitely. In addition, at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, you can see the Colleen Moore dollhouse, that previously mentioned $500,000 dollhouse. That's actually the, the place that I put on my must-have list. All the nieces and nephews are like, okay, what can we do? I'm like, anything. But this is my only one thing that I have to see. I go see it every year. Mm -hmm. The electricity works, the plumbing works, the fountains work. It's just amazing. And if you are in the UK, you can go to Windsor to see Queen Mary's dollhouse. We'll give you links to both of those. As far as websites go, Harvard Medical School does have information regarding their legal medicine program. And you will be disappointed to learn how they approach her involvement in it. So uh, Frances isn't prominent on the Harvard website. She's there, but she I don't think she got the credit that she was due. But I don't work for Harvard, so. Well, okay. How about this? Let's give her some more credit. On the New Hampshire public radio site, there is both a short story of her life and a little bit more knowledge about box number 20. And it's going to provide you the same clues and the same stories that they would have been given had this box been deployed. But as the answer key has been lost, the question is then left up to you at the end of the article. What do you think is happening? That's a good resource too. 
Definitely. A couple of rabbit holes here that I fell down the history of Coca-Cola, if you're interested in the opportunity <laughs> lost. Um, the very first concert that the Chicago Symphony ever had, that is actually from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra website. And then, speaking of strong stomachs, if you are interested in some sort of live action experimentation that's been going on since the 70s, this is kind of past Francis Glessner's Lee's time, but I think she would appreciate it. There is a place called The Body Farm in which they use people who have donated their bodies to science sometimes end up here. And these scientists look into time, weather, insects, botany, that kind of thing. It's a live lab for people to become experts in that field. So anyway, we'll give you a link to that. I don't have anything else. As promised, here are some of the details of the field trips that we are going to in 2024. In order, we are going to Austria. And then a long weekend in New York City, and then back to Paris in the fall. The specific details for the New York long weekend and the return to Paris, we don't have those nailed down yet. However, Austria, we are going to go on June 20th to the 30th. We're going to be going to Vienna for a few days, then Salzburg. Stay tuned for further details. We will let you know when it is time to jump around and put your finger on your mouse and travel with us to assorted destinations in 2024. We cannot wait to see you all. And that will do it for us. And in closing, we would like to leave you with Earl Stanley Gardner's obituary of Francis Glessner Lee. Captain Lee had a strong individuality, a unique, unforgettable character, and was a fiercely competent fighter and a practical idealist. The cause of legal medicine and law enforcement suffered a great blow with her passing, and yet, for years, the country will benefit because of her dogged determination, her down-to-earth grasp of the problems with which she was confronted, and her unswerving determination to find a solution by persistence, diplomacy, charm, and if all else failed, by downright battering ram infighting. She was a wonderful woman. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends, won't you? Or leave a review for us in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. The song in the middle is not, unfortunately, the drum major of Schneider's Band, which was Mama's favorite song that was on all the little music stands in the tiny orchestra. Uh, I couldn't get it. I couldn't find it anywhere and I couldn't get it um, licensed. So another song from 1913, the year that she gave that symphony diorama to her mama, I put in um, that they might have played that year. It's called The Banks of Green Willow by George Butterworth, made perhaps a little more poignant that after he had that massive worldwide hit with his song, he unfortunately died right afterward in World War I. So a little homage to George Butterworth in the middle. And the song at the end is Victim of Crime by Heifer Vescent. Sometimes I just find lyrics that to me are so accidentally perfect. I mean, I feel like I, I need to have a lighter or is it my phone screen now that I have to wave around at a concert? Don't tell me. See you next time. You can't accept it No matter how I try to illustrate The books are closed 
So there's no point in asking Why did you Cause now 